Uh, so uh, we are getting towards the end of Second Samuel, and uh, anybody else hear that? Okay, okay. Sometimes I feel like I'm hearing stuff and nobody else is hearing it. All right, um, we're getting the end uh, the, near the end of Second Samuel, and um, uh, we, if you were here with us uh, last time we met, we talked about the fact that the last four chapters form uh, an epilogue. Uh, the last few chapters form an epilogue. And just as, as 1 Samuel begins with a prologue, so 2 Samuel begins with an epilogue, and that reminds us that the two, uh, two books are really one. And uh, as the story wraps up with this epilogue, we see that it's formed in what's called a chiasm. And we, we talked about this a lot, that the, the, the author of Samuel really loves this, uh, this framework, this, this, uh, this literary device called a chiasm. And, and what it is, basically, is there's a, a, there's a first element, and, and it matches the last element. They mirror each other. And the second element mirrors the second to last element. And the third and the fourth element mirror each other. And, and that's where you get to the center of the X. Chiasm comes from the Greek uh, letter uh, chi, which looks like our English X. And so at the center of the X, that's where the author is pointing your gaze to, pointing to as the most important thing in that section. And we're going to get there. So uh, last time we looked at chapter 21. Chapter 21 uh, mirrors chapter 24. We'll see that in a couple of weeks. Uh, this week we're going to be looking at the second part of chapter 21 and then part of chapter 23. We're going to be looking at David's mighty men, uh, these individuals who uh, fought alongside David. Uh, next week we're going to look at uh, chapter 22 in the beginning of 23 where there's uh, some, some poetry there. There's some, some psalms there. There's a psalm of deliverance from David, uh, but there's also something that points to his last words uh, that are there. But, but that's the point that will be highlighted the most, but we're getting there. So this morning we'll begin uh, the, the end of chapter 21. Now, we're going to eventually get there. We're not going to start there. I'm going to start with this, that to remind us that when we go back to creation and God's intended purpose, it has always been to include humanity in what he's doing. That when he created everything that he made, uh, he, he takes our, our first parents and he, he invites them to name everything. Uh, he invites them to co sort of co-rule with him over creation. That, that God has invited humanity to take part in what he is doing, to see what he's done, and to do likewise, empowered and enabled by him. Okay? And that's a theme that's going to be recurring this morning as we walk through this. Where I want to begin this morning is actually Luke chapter uh, 22. So if you turn with me, Luke chapter 22, we're going to look at verses 35 to 38 to begin with. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the words will be up on the screen. But as you're turning, um, I have this to say, good news, there's no murder today. Uh, we're, we're, we're going to see some death, but it's in combat, okay? There's nobody who's going to grab another guy by uh, his beard and thrust a sword into his side. All right, there's no murder. Um, there's not going to be any sacrifice. Nobody's going to have to pay for the sins of somebody else. Um, there's no uh, adultery or sexual assault. That's good news. Um, and there's no betrayal. There's, uh, there's no insurrection in the passage that we're looking at today. In fact, the, the passage is actually pretty, pretty positive in nature, um, which we haven't seen a whole lot of, all right, especially since chapter 11 of, of 2 Samuel. So good news there. Uh, however, just as difficult you might find is that we're going to be discussing some spiritual warfare issues. And for Christians in the West, uh, these are things that are sometimes hard to wrap our minds around or even swallow or believe it. So we'll get there. But I want to start in Luke chapter 22, and the scene in, in this passage is uh, Jesus has, has just had his, his last meal with his disciples. Um, they're, they're preparing to, 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 to go out to the, this garden where Jesus is going to pray, and then he's going to be arrested, he's going to be tried, he's going to be convicted, and he's going to be sentenced to death on a Roman cross. 
But there's this scene here in which Jesus, he's, he's preparing them, his disciples, for what's about to happen to him, but also what's about to happen for them. And so let's read. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Okay, so he's recalling to mind how he sent them out. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus sent his 12 disciples out to to preach the gospel to the surrounding towns and villages. And he sent them out empty-handed. In chapter 9, it says, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, do not have two tunics. Go empty-handed. The very next chapter, he sends out 72 of his followers, saying basically the same thing. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. In other words, be empty-handed and depend on the people that you're preaching the gospel to to provide for your needs. Now things have changed. And what we see in Luke 22 is Jesus is beginning to give them a precursor for what we're going to call the Great Commission later on. After Jesus' death and his resurrection, he appears to his disciples and he commissions them and he sends them again. You read uh, that in detail at the end of chapter uh, of, of Matthew 28, but you also see in Acts 1.8 where it says this, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Once again, he's going to send them. In Luke 22, there's this sort of pre-commissioning thing that he's doing here. And, and he's, he's saying, this time, take physical provisions for yourself and buy a sword. And that's weird. Jesus, he's not now going to pick up a sword. Uh, Jesus isn't going into Jerusalem with sword in hand. Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem. He's not going to kill. He's going to be killed. Likewise, he's not telling his disciples that their new job has changed and that they're to become militant in nature. He's not tell, now telling them that, that, that from this point on, you guys are, 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 are at, at physical war. That's, that's not what he's saying here. Um, Jesus is he's giving them a, a foretaste of what's going to happen to him. He quotes from uh, Isaiah 53, 12. The whole of that verse says this. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many... And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is what Jesus quotes from. He's he's talking about this this prophecy from Isaiah written hundreds of years that, that, that really talked about how the Messiah would pay a penalty In doing so, uh, there would be a reward, there would be spoil that is divided among the strong, among the mighty men or mighty women, so to speak, is the language we're going to use today. uh, But in this process, um, he's going to intercede for us and do away with sin. That's what Jesus has come to do. Jesus has told his disciples over and over again, we're going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, when we try, I'm going to be convicted, and I'm going to be killed, but then I'm going to rise. He's told them over and over and over again, and they've never gotten it. They've never understood. And Jesus is, he's mentioning this once again, what's going to happen to him? They don't get it. Um, and in fact, what they hear is, is something different. Jesus says, buy a sword. And, uh, and, you, and you see these guys, and it's like two of them are like, I'm already packing. 
I got one right here. Somebody else said, yeah, I got one too. And, and when Jesus says, it is enough, to be clear here, Jesus isn't saying, well, that's an appropriate amount of swords. He's not saying, that is a sufficient quantity of swords. No, he's saying, enough. You don't get it. Um, the same language is used uh, in Mark when Jesus is in the, the Garden of Gethsemane and he tells his disciples to pray. Stay awake and pray while he's praying. And he comes back and he finds them asleep and he says, it's enough. Wake up. This is a, a, a statement of frustration on Jesus' part because his disciples don't get it. And the reason they don't get it is because this doesn't fit in with their schemata. Now, you've ever heard that word before. Schemata comes from neuroscience. And um, what, it, what it means is that we, as we, uh, we develop our brains growing up, we all begin to form frameworks for how we view reality. We have a framework for what fits into our, our reality. It's called a, a schemata. And as, as we form these frameworks, they can become somewhat rigid, that as we get to points in life where we encounter new information, that if it, if it doesn't jive with the current schemata or framework, then we have to do one of two things. Either we have to twist it in order to make it fit in what we perceive, or we have to discard it. So imagine that you're um, an Israelite Jewish male um, living 2,000 years ago and you've been taught your whole life that the Messiah is coming. And the Messiah in your schemata, in your framework, he's going to come and he's going to bring a sword like David and he's going to fight and defeat your enemies and he's going to reestablish the nation of Israel. In, in your framework, the Messiah is going to be a conquering warrior type hero and yet you've been introduced to Jesus and you've begun to follow Jesus and at some point you realize this is the Messiah. The Messiah is saying he's not going to kill, he's going to be killed. The Messiah is not getting a sword. He, he's not leading an army. And all of a sudden, you're, you're forced with, to, to embrace new information that the Messiah doesn't fit into the framework that you had built for him. So what do you do with him? Either you have to twist what he's going to do to make it fit, or you discard and ignore it. The disciples did not understand when Jesus told them what he was going to do. In fact, when they hear, buy a sword, you, you can imagine some of them are probably like, Finally, like the preaching has been cool. The, the, the casting out of demons, fun, right? People rising from the dead and getting healed, really like that stuff. But can we get down to the killing already? Can we get down to the taking it back already? Can we get down to, to, to overthrowing Rome, our oppressors already? Can we get to this? I'm ready, I got my sword. And Jesus is like, you don't get it. You don't get who the real enemy is. The Son of God comes and he takes on flesh and he lives that righteous life not to go fight Rome. He comes and he takes on flesh to, to, to live that righteous life so he could take it to offer it as a, a sacrifice for sin, our sin, God's righteous wrath aimed at us because of our disobedience and rebellion. And he stands between us and God and he absorbs that in his flesh. In his death, he conquers sin. And in his resurrection, he conquers death. And then he ascends to the throne and all power and dominion is him and he conquers Satan. See, Jesus has addressed our truest, deepest enemies. That's what he came to do. And he calls us to join him in that. 
He's calling his disciples to join him in that. Not pick up physical swords, but pick up the spiritual sword, the sword of the spirit, because he sends the spirit to live inside the hearts of his followers so that we're enabled not only to see what he did and how he lived, we're able to see the deeds of of God expressed through him, but we're able to, to then join him in what he's doing, empowered to do what he's doing, motivated by the love which, which sent him. The disciples, they didn't get it in the moment, but they will. See, the resurrection of Jesus, it blew up their schematis. It blew up their framework for understanding. The resurrection of Jesus, a man come back from the dead, completely changed their worldview as it changed ours. It completely, completely changed their, their, their framework so that Paul would say this to the Ephesian church, put on the whole armor of God, not physical armor. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now let me ask you this. Knowing what the Bible has to say about spiritual realities, spiritual beings, spiritual places, spiritual enemies. Knowing what the Bible has to say about spiritual warfare in general, how does that fit into your schemata? How does that fit into your framework for what reality is? Would you look at this and say, it doesn't. It doesn't fit. The, the reality is we, we, we live in a culture which has proven that science and technology have the answers that we need, that all the causes and ills of life, that's not the, the result of some demonic evil out there. There's not a Satan, there's not a, there's not a spiritual, it's only what I can see, taste, touch, smell, and feel. That's all that's real. Or would you say, yeah, like there's, there was like a spiritual reality, but that's ended, like Jesus did away with that like 2,000 years ago, like that's, that's over, it's not a reality which I'm living in. Or, or would you say, yes, I conceptually, like I give mental assent to the, the yeah, but any role that it has in my life, I, I don't know, I have lots of questions, you know? Or, or maybe you would say, yeah, it's real. I've experienced it. How does a spiritual reality fit into your schemata, into your framework for the reality of life? Now, to remind you that the, the principle that's at work here is that when we, we see this throughout the scripture, that we are, we are supposed to know God through his revelation. Right? He's revealed himself through creation. He's revealed himself through his word. God desires that we know him. And in knowing him, we see his deeds. We see what he's done. We see what he's doing. We, he, we, we see what he's going to do. We see his deeds. And in seeing his deeds, we know what we're supposed to be about. We know what we're supposed to do. And understanding that not only are we, we, we clued into what life is about and what we're supposed to do, he actually gives us the power to do it in his spirit. But more than that, he gives us the motivation to do it out of love. It's a principle that, that's at work here, and we're gonna see that here in the text. Now, we're gonna take one step closer to our text. We're not there yet. Uh, our text is gonna be 2 Samuel 21. We're gonna be 1 Samuel 17. One step closer to it. 
Um, even if you've never been to church before, you know most of the story of 1 Samuel 17. It's a shepherd boy who faces off against a giant with a sling and a rock, right? So uh, the, the story goes that here's, here's young uh, David. He's, a, he, he's been anointed to be the next king over Israel. Um, he is an anointed one. That's the word Messiah there. He is a type of Messiah that points to the Messiah, Jesus. He's a prototype. He's a pattern. He's, he, he's, he's analogous to something greater to come. And we see that in the life of David that he points us to a better king. Right? Second Samuel, we've seen over and over again. It points us to our need for a better king. Well, David points us to a better king, and that's Jesus. But here in this moment, he's just a shepherd boy. He's not king yet. And he's been sent by his father to bring provisions to his brother, the two brothers who were out on, uh, on the, the Israelites' lines. They're, they're formed up against the, an army of the Philistines. And he's sent to bring them food and provisions. And he comes, and he arrives to see this big man coming from the lines of, of the Philistines, stepping out in front of them and saying, I defy the army of Israel, and I defy the God of the army of Israel. And David looks at this, and he's like, why is this guy still breathing? I, I fail to understand. Well, he's a giant. He's nine feet tall. Do you see his weaponry? You see how big and massive he is. David's like, I don't see the problem here. David says, I'll fight him. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. I'll fight him. And so they give him some armor to try on. He doesn't try it on. Well, he does try it on. He finds it doesn't fit. Can't use it. He's given a sword. Can't wield it. Right? David doesn't take a sword to the fight. He takes a stick. He takes a shepherd's staff. He takes a tool that's used for the guiding and the protecting of sheep that he shepherds. He takes a stick, he takes a sling, and he takes some rocks. And he steps out in front of Goliath. And Goliath sees him and says, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Are we gonna play fetch? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air to the beasts of the field. Now when, when it says that he cursed him by his gods, he doesn't mean like that Goliath just cussed him out. No, it means I'm invoking the name of my gods against the name of your gods. The, the people who were originally read Samuel would have seen way beyond the physical dimensions of this. We tend to look at this and say, well, here's a physical fight between two armies, and it's over, oh, precious resources. It's over land, territory, whatever. The original hearers of this would have been like, this is a spiritual battle as well as a physical battle that this was about whose God is greater. In, in pre-Christian civilizations, if you ever visit one, you see that spiritualism is, it runs rampant in a society that believes that all blessings are the result of, of appeasing a God and all curses are the result of displeasing that God. This is a culture wherein the Israelites, they believed in a spiritual God that lived among them in this tabernacle but that all the surrounding nations also had gods that they worshiped. They had temples, and within those temples, there were these, these monuments, these creations made out of, of, of wood or, or stone or precious metals. But Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32 clues us in that behind all of those idols, there's a demon. There's a demon. We might look at this and say, well, 
These people are just backward and they're attributing to spiritual things to actual physical things and the spiritual doesn't even exist. The Bible says, no, the spiritual does exist. There are spiritual beings behind what they're worshiping. They're demons. They're spiritual beings opposed to God. That's why Goliath steps onto the field and says, I defy the army of Israel and I defy its God. This is spiritual war that's being seen here. And, and, and the author, or the, the, the writers, or the readers of First and Second Samuel, they would have understood this. They would have seen this, the spiritual battle that's, that's going on. And that's why David does what he does. He, he says this to Goliath, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. This is, this is spiritual warfare language. He, he's, he's using the name, the invoking the name of, of the God of Israel in power against this Goliath's demon. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Now, an Israelite soldier would have been standing there and he's looking at himself playing, I'm 5'10", 5'11", and I'm looking across the field of battle and there's a guy who's nine feet tall heavily armed and equipped, powerful man. And he's comparing himself to what he sees across the valley. David stands in the same position, armed with a stick, a couple of rocks and a sling, looking at the same thing that Israelite soldier is, is, is looking at and has a very different conclusion about what he's seeing. Because David with the eyes of faith is saying, I know who my God is. And I know what that guy's God is. It's a puny little demon. This is like swatting a fly. This is like killing a gnat. This is, this is no sweat. This is, I mean, this is what I do before breakfast. Like, this is nothing. He looks at the same thing, but he, he looks through a spiritual lens and a lens of faith, and it's a faith that is rested upon who his God is. The God of the universe that man may be big, but his God's a little demon. It's nothing. It's nobody. But he recognizes the spiritual fight that exists there. So he slings the stone. Goliath goes down. David walks up, grabs the guy's sword, and chops his head off with it. Paul says this about what Jesus did in Colossians 2. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is God. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also, having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And watch this part. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Here's David holding up a sword in Goliath's head. The picture of what Jesus did through his death and his resurrection and his ascension is a picture of him triumphing over enemies, shaming them. That's how powerful that he is. And to, and to understand that what Jesus has done for us, he wants to do through us, that he's calling us to participate. He's calling us to join in the fight and he's gonna give us the power to do it and he's gonna give us the motivation to do it. The spirit and love. 
Now we're ready to get into our passage. Wow, look at that. Uh, turn with me to 2 Samuel 21. We're going to look at verses 15 through 22 together. We're going to look at, at David's mighty men. The word there is gabor. That's the Hebrew word. Um, gabor. Here are David's mighty men. Beginning of verse 15. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went out down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. So this is uh, probably the end of David's life. He's older. He's not as, uh, as sprite as he used to be in battle. So in battle, he's getting tired. He's, we're, he's wearing out. And here's a, here's a giant, a, a, another big guy who sets his target, his sights on David, and he's about to kill him when Abishai stands between him and this giant and strikes down the giant. And after this, his men are like, nope, you're staying home. No going not to war with you. Because if you die, then the lamp of Israel extinguished is extinguished. You're so much more than a military leader to us. Verse 18, after this, there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai the Hushethite struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. So another battle with the Philistines, another mighty man, another giant. 19. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob, and Elhanan, the son of Jair or Jim, or Gim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Um, here's maybe Goliath Jr. Come out to fight, but once again, Philistine war, mighty man, giant falls. Verse 20. And there was again war at Gath where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended <clears throat> from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Fourth guy, fourth war, fourth giant, fourth mighty man. Right? What's happening here? These mighty men, what is the purpose of, of, of their, their inclusion in the book of Samuel at this point? Like, why does this matter? I mean, beyond like amusement and color, right? Like, we all love war stories. We, we, we like to hear about mighty battles and things like that. Maybe some of us do, maybe not everybody. But, but is this just for, you know, entertainment value? See, see, what's being expressed here is on one level, it's this. It's that David had a positive impact on some people. Right, he, he, he did make a difference in some people's lives. He did make the lives of some people better. Not everybody. The last guy on the list, for instance, that we're gonna look at here in a minute. But he made the lives of people better. But, but he, he emboldens them in able to, to do something, to achieve something that he himself could do. Let's, let's continue, flip over to chapter 23. Uh, we'll start in verse eight. Um, the, 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 the saga of the mighty men sort of continues. Verse eight, there are the, these are the names of the mighty men who David had. Josheb, Bashabeth, a Tachmanite. He was chief of the three. 
He wielded his sword or a spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. One guy, one spear, 800. That's pretty good. Verse 9. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dado, son of Ahohi. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. The men of Israel withdrew. But he rose and he struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword and the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. So here's David and here's one guy. They're surrounded by the, the Israelite army. Everybody flees. It's just David and this one guy. And they fight so long and so hard that by the end of the day, they can't let go of their sword because it's, it's just stuck there. They're so tired. But mighty victory. Everybody else comes back, but the only thing they can do is strip the slain. Um, verse 11, and next to him was Shema, the son of Aji, the Herorite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. Um, again, army of Israel flees. One guy stands on his own and defeats a whole enemy. It's amazing. <clears throat> then verse 13. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink these things the three mighty men did. So the passage continues on, more deeds listed, more names listed till you get to the end and it says there's 37 names here. When you go back and examine it, you actually only find 36. The 37th was probably Sivakai who beat Saf in chapter 21, called a mighty man but not listed here. But, but why are these names here? Why does this, this matter? Well, again, it's to show that David made a positive impact. That there are some people who made made contact with, with, with David in his life, and it had a positive result for them, except for the last guy on the list. I'll let you figure that one out. But here are these group of men who are, in and of themselves, they're nobodies. Um, they're, they're, in and of themselves, they're not courageous. They're not, um, they're not powerful. They're not awesome. They're not you know, great members of society. In fact, uh, 1 Samuel 22, verse 2 says what kind of men they were. Uh, and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and became commander over them. His mighty men were indebted, bitter, frustrated, angry people. Like before they were David's mighty men, they were David's pathetic men. Worthless men. But somehow, uh, being with David and fighting alongside David for years and, 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 and all the sweat, blood, and tears shed together, somehow this forged bonds and forged relationships so that they were emboldened by David, that they, were, they, they loved David, that they were able to do what David did as David could stand and fight a giant so his mighty men could fight giants. They joined in the work that he was doing 
they were mighty and courageous for that reason, for, for, for the love and the faith that David had that instilled. Some men experienced a positive impact from David's life. And the author of, of, of Samuel is reminding that, us of that. Right? The second thing, though, is, is just remind us of the truth that we're supposed to see what God is doing. And we're supposed to join in it. As David's men saw what David did, they joined in. And they were given the power to do it. They were emboldened by Dave to do it, and they were motivated by love to do it. So they joined in. It's interesting when you look at the men who follow Jesus, right? Tax collectors, zealots, fishermen, not exactly mighty men, and yet look what they went on to do for Christ because of his example, but also his power. The power given to them by the Holy Spirit. This morning, I want to partake of communion together with you as part of the message. And so I'm going to ask you to pass the elements now. After we've partaken of the, the elements together, we'll, we'll conclude the, the message part. But there's something on this passage or in this passage that I want us to reflect on as we partake of communion this morning. I'm going to reread for you chapter 23, beginning of verse 14. Uh, David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord, and he said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now, see, when this uh, happened, David was not yet king. Saul was king. David was on the run from Saul. David was a fugitive. He was hiding. He was in fear of his life. Uh, Add to that the, the, the presence of the Philistines in his hometown. David was from Bethlehem. When he says, I want to drink from the well in Bethlehem, he's not saying, I'm thirsty. He's saying, I'm homesick. How many of you have experienced this, that the, the best water in the world is from home, right? It's from the, the tap in your house. You move to Ohio, and you find the stuff that comes out of the tap here is okay. <laughs> David's like, he's longing for home. He's homesick. Water from his well you see, he, he's under the, this, this strain. He's, he's physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally tired. He's on the run. He's in a cave. He's surrounded by these guys. And, 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 and there's, no, there's no end in sight. And all he can do is long for a time when things were, were safe, when he was home. Do you realize that the elements that you hold in your hand, they point us toward a Trinitarian God, who, who went beyond enemy lines in order to give us living water to drink. These three men, they, they went in love for David to go get this water, and, and they brought it back, but they didn't die. Jesus died to give us living water. That this cup, it symbolizes a new covenant that we have with God the Father. This is Jesus saying to us, you get to come home now. You've been on a run. You've been hiding because of your sin and your shame from God. 
You've been on the run, and God, through Jesus Christ, wants you to come home. That's what it means for us. David looks at this cup. He says, this is, this is precious. There's, there's three guys, they almost gave their lives for this. Jesus did give his life. But this is precious. Three guys almost gave their lives for this. Dumps it out. I don't know about you, but if I was one of those three guys, I'd be like, we almost died for that David asks this question shall I drink the blood of the men who went at risk of their lives you see you hold this cup in your hands and and Jesus before he goes to the cross he gives this cup to his disciples and he says this is my blood it's going to be poured out for you so that you can have this relationship with God this new covenant because of my blood being poured out take it and drink it will we drink it We'd better. In chapter 21, it says, And David grew weary. And Ishbi Benab, one of the descendants of the giants whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. Do you realize that there was a time when you were weary in your sin and you were, you were down and out and there was an enemy who stood over you pointing a spear at you and the spear was your sin and the enemy was your accuser. A spiritual enemy who wants to destroy you because of your own sin. Abishai stepped in and saved David. Jesus stepped in and saved you and me. The weight of our sin leveled against us by the wrath of God, Jesus stands in between us and him and absorbs it into himself. You see, the symbols that you hold in your hand right now there's symbols of the great love that God has for you and I. And that love demonstrated through the great deeds of Christ. And he didn't pick up a sword, he picked up a cross. And this is how his love is demonstrated for us. And if you are in Christ Jesus, if you have experienced that love and you love him, then partake of those elements now. principle that we've been looking at this morning is this, this biblical idea that God has he's revealed himself to us. He wants us to know him. He wants us to see his actions throughout redemptive history. And to see his actions and see his deeds to know what we're supposed to be about. What we're supposed to do. But not only do we know what we're supposed to do, we're, we're also empowered to do it because of his spirit. But lastly, we're motivated to do it because of his love. Now, Paul tells the Ephesian church that the power that raised Christ from the dead now lives in us. That's the kind of power we have access to. But he also tells us about the motivation. And in Romans 8, we we see this. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The motivating factor for us to join the fight is love. But the power is the spirit, and this is the problem. This is the problem. We have had our schematas, our frameworks, shaped more by our culture than the word of God. Our frameworks have been shaped by a culture which has said, there's nothing spiritual. There's only physical. And science has has given us the tools and the technology that we need in order to face that which is physical, but there's nothing spiritual. And we've been shaped by these ideas. So we get to the point where even as Christians, we believe them. And 99 times out of 100, when a Christian faces a difficulty, I've noticed in the West, that when we face trials and, and, and tribulations in life, we don't for a second give any thought to the fact that it might be spiritual in origin. We only think that it's physical in origin. So we only look to physical means in order to solve it. Our frameworks have been shaped by the culture, not the word of God. You cannot read the word of God and and walk away saying there's no such thing as a spiritual reality. Now, I'm not saying there's no physical reality. I'm I'm not saying that there's not physical issues that we deal with that have physical solutions. In a few weeks, we're gonna be tackling some some issues regarding mental and emotional health. And the, the truth is that there are some physical issues that are involved there that have physical solutions but there are also spiritual ones. And and the reality is that for Christians, we don't tend to ever think about the spiritual. We only think about the physical. We only think about the spiritual. The the, the question is, why doesn't the spiritual reality we find in Scripture fit into into our framework? Why is that? In a word, it's prejudice. Prejudice. Prejudice means an unfavorable opinion or feeling formed beforehand without knowledge, thought, or reason. Prejudging without all the the facts. Right? Forming conclusions without reason, without truth, without fact. You look at people's different schematas, frameworks for how they view life. And in one you might find that there's this view that all people of color can't be trusted. Or in another framework, you find anybody who wears a badge and a gun is authoritarian. Or in another framework, you would find that uh, anybody who's the opposite gender is weak, either physically, emotionally, or spiritually. Or that everybody in this age category is irrelevant, and everybody in this age category is just nonsensical. Whatever it is, forming different frameworks or views of how the world works that looks at somebody else but without knowledge of them, without relationship with them, without the truth of who they are, we prejudge them. And the reality is nobody thinks they're prejudiced. Right? Nobody thinks they're prejudiced. We're prejudiced against the Holy Spirit. God the Father, you're great. Jesus, you're awesome. Holy Spirit's an it, not a person. We don't take him seriously. And so Christians who are, who are struggling with all these difficult things in their life, 
The reality is, is there's, there's a prejudice that's being demonstrated there. See, if you don't know the Spirit's power, you can't have victory. You can't have victory if you never confront the spiritual reality. Right? But, but without the Spirit's power, you, you just, you, all your problems are, can only be solved physically. And that's not working out well for many of us, right? The, the, the reality is, it's like, the Spirit has power, but you don't know that power until you get to know the Spirit. And I, and I tell you, we don't know the Spirit because we don't read our Bibles and we don't pray. You, you encounter a Christian who's di- dealing with something difficult in your life, you're like, well, what is your prayer life like? What is, what is your Bible study like? like? What is your time with the Word like? like what is the, the relationship like? Well, it doesn't exist. Why? Um, I know I should, but why? See, the, the reality is that we have this prejudice against the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is good to get you into heaven, but he's not trustworthy enough to get you through the day. You don't know the Spirit's power because you don't know the Spirit, and you don't know the Spirit because you don't pray and you're not in your Bible. And I know you've probably been in churches, and some of you have been in church your whole life, and you've heard this a thousand times. Read the Bible more and pray more. Is it wrong? So let me give you a new reason, another reason to read your Bible and pray so that you can come your, overcome your ignorance and your prejudice, so that you can begin to start seeing the person of the Holy Spirit as a person that in the knowing of him you will stop prejudging him and his limitations that in knowing him you will stop prejudging him so that you can experience his power another reason to read your, your, your Bible and to pray to stop being prejudiced nobody thinks they're prejudiced but are we? I would argue if if we're not experiencing any victory in our lives over things, it's probably because we're not confronting things. And we're probably not confronting things because we don't have the power to do it. And we don't have the power to do it, not because it's not available, but because we don't know the one who can give it to us. So here's today's application. Pray more. Read your Bible more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for coming, for sending, for rescuing, for finding, for seeing, for reaching out. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the the one who did come, for the one who willingly came. Thank you for your sacrifice, for your immense love for us. And Holy Spirit, forgive us for ignoring you. Help us to know you. Help us to pray not because we need to check off some sort of religious box. Help us to pray so that we will learn you and we can know you, that we would see a relationship with you as valuable and in that relationship find the power that you have for us to live for you, for your purposes. Enable us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.